Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another episode. On this show, we'll talk to Jason Hack at Brown at Rhode Island Hospital, and uh, we'll be talking about alcohol intoxication and the search for an objective measure of impairment. Now, many of you listening probably have your favorite measure already. Maybe you use a breathalyzer or a blood alcohol level or BAL. Maybe you use the uh, fabled clinical sobriety but uh, Dr. Hack has put together an instrument or an index that I think might change how you practice. And best of all, it's free, and it's actually available right now on our website. But before you go to our website, I feel like uh, we should make a quick announcement. Some of you uh, have enjoyed our our episodes for the last few years, and uh, we're pleased to announce that we are going to have a new name in the future. Talks Talk will now be known as Talks Now. That's T O X. N-O-W. Now, this will be accompanied with some changes over the coming weeks in our Twitter feed and website, but don't worry too much. If you subscribe via the iTunes store, your subscription will transfer. If you subscribe on our Twitter feed, don't worry, you'll be automatically switched over. And if you don't subscribe, uh, well, I would I would suggest that you do. I mean, it really allows you to, to kind of be lazier and uh, just sort of get the episodes automatically. And certainly the Twitter feed at Talks Now really allows you to keep track of new developments and toxicology in between episodes also allows you to yell at us when you don't like what we've said. I am also pleased to announce an upcoming project. We're going to be working with um, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine to talk to some toxicologists about the pros and cons of intranasal naloxone. Uh, Now, that promises to be a fiery dialogue, and I'm sure that many of you uh, have some questions and opinions. Uh, If you have any questions or comments or anything on intranasal naloxone or home naloxone, feel free to drop us a line at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W. T-O-X-N-O-W.org. As usual, I am Matt Zuckerman, Assistant Professor in Toxicology at the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Tox Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman. With me today is the illustrious Jason Hack, Head of the Division of Toxicology at Brown Warren Alpert School of Medicine. And we are here to talk today about uh, this article from American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse, the H-Impairment Index, a Standardized Assessment of Alcohol-Induced Impairment in the Emergency Department, where the primary author is the Jason Hack. Well, thanks for having me. I really uh, I really appreciate it. I listen to your podcast all the time, and I love, you know, you, you trained here, and uh, I know you, you went far, far away, and it always made me feel like you were a little bit closer when I could hear your voice from afar. So, oh, so, that's nice. So welcome back. Welcome, welcome back stateside. That's pretty sweet. I like that idea of like you on a pillow. <laughs> well, uh, sure. Uh, all right. I'll go with that. That's how I imagine everyone actually. <laughs> well, everyone laying on the pillow, listening yes. to your voice. Going to sleep. Soothing voice. 
We'll dive into a little bit about the paper about that. But essentially, it seems like the point of this paper is to really come up with an objective, reliable, easy to use bedside scale for assessing intoxication from alcohol. That a healthcare provider could do at the bedside, not need a lot of resources, could be done quick, would be an acceptable thing for a nurse or another healthcare provider, perhaps not the physician, to do a reliable examination that touched on all of the aspects of things that we do and have been doing across the country for a long time to assess somebody's impairment in an organized way. And by making it sort of in an organized, standard way, it can be serialized. And that was also another key to this. Cool. Yeah. So this isn't your first foray or interest in studying alcohol and the effects of alcohol on patients? Well, you know my background. I trained at Bellevue. So that was my introduction to emergency medicine. And because of that introduction, my interest and, and really soft spot is patients that have significant alcohol impairment and alcohol problems. You know, this, this is a tremendous issue uh, across the United States and across the world. And I think that in a lot of ways, we've been sort of piecemealing their management. Obviously, they need a medical evaluation. You need to uh, make sure they don't have a concurrent medical or traumatic injury, that they don't have a psychiatric need that would require other interventions. But to be in the emergency department uniquely because of this temporarily induced alcohol impairment takes patience and care and attention. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's a great way to put it. They are a vulnerable population, and so often we focus on the CT and not on the patient, and uh, so this is another tool that we can use. And it seemed like initially, so because so, the paper kind of talks about prior attempts to assess levels of impairment from alcohol. And it seemed like some of that is from trauma literature and some of that is from another source, especially when you talk about alcohol, is the legal arena, which is really trying to measure sort of impairment related to driving. And then there's everyone's favorite thing, which is a level of some sort. And so with alcohol, we have breathalyzers and BALs, but we all know that they're, they're sort of flawed. Right. One of the key pieces of this is that an alcohol level in many populations, doesn't tell you their level of impairment. So some people who drink on a daily basis and heavily really need this baseline alcohol level for their functioning of normal life. Now, when they present to the emergency department for alcohol intoxication, obviously that level has been exceeded. But to arbitrarily decide, I'm going to hold someone until their alcohol level is below 100 milligrams per deciliter because that's what somebody told me I have to do, in a lot of cases, actually puts the patient at risk for harm. A nice sort of, uh, I guess, parallel would be the poorly controlled diabetic whose normal blood sugar is 300, right? When they show up, when their blood sugar is 500 because they ate, you know, something they shouldn't have, we treat them, we watch them, and when they become sort of, you know, they become normal as long as they don't have a concurrent problem, we will let them go home at 300, you know, with, hey, you need to see your doctor, you need to have better glucose control, perhaps a better diet. To hold them and to administer glucose-lowering medications to get them to an arbitrary number of whatever you choose, 100, you know, glucose of 100, they would be in harm's way. They would be hypoglycemic. They wouldn't be thinking so well. We'd have to give them exogenous glucose. We wouldn't be doing them a favor. In the same way, 
people who are at the highest functioning point with an alcohol level, probably that's that's where they need to be. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great. That's an absolutely great point. And it's because there are people that walk around at 150. There are people that get withdrawal, you know, when they drop below 200, or there are people that Certainly. get withdrawal when they drop lower. And then you get sort of like the 80 pound freshman college student who might be on the floor from a much much lower level. Um, absolutely. So right. So somebody who doesn't drink all the time probably should get their highest functioning back when their alcohol level is approaching zero. But that's important to know. And, and really, using an arbitrary number, I think, is a disservice to many of these patients. So the flip side is that we're, we're not police. We are not charged with holding somebody against their will who has resolved their impairment. You know, that becomes assault here. Now, of course, this changes if it's an underage person or if they have their car keys in their hand. Then I fully support protecting them from themselves and protecting society from their actions. But in the case where somebody is leaving with a friend or just, you know, sort of walking home, I don't know that we should be in the position of holding them. Yeah, no, I think that's that's an excellent point. And that's certainly working in different shops. You'll see the, you know, from an ED flow point of view, there's sometimes a forward pressure to get people out. So you see shops where it's like, well, they can kind of get on their two legs. Let's get them out of here. They're fine. Mm -hmm. And then you see shops where, especially if they don't see a lot of alcoholics, and maybe it's it's a different sort of flow perspective. Oh, well, well, I, we hold them until they hit zero, and then they withdraw, and then we admit them. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've seen different emphases, and it seems like that's sometimes based on the level. Sometimes it's based on our favorite documented thing, you know, uh, clinical sobriety. You write that in the chart and send them off. And so the nice thing about this is an, it's an attempt to really assess alcohol impairment in different populations of people who have had maybe recurrent visits for alcohol uh, use or just one visit. And then also, unlike a lot of the other literature, you didn't just focus on trauma patients, which are going to have their own unique characteristics in terms of incidence of alcohol use, incidence of substance use, and, and really medical clearance. You know, if the guy's got a broken femur, his alcohol level and when he sobers up is less of an issue in a lot of ways. One of the papers you cited in here is the Mahler paper from 2010, which really said they looked at people above 80 milligrams per deciliter, below 80 milligrams per deciliter, and they admit that they picked that level because it's a legal level. It's not a medical level. Correct. Um, and so there is a lot of overlap here. So at the most basic level, when you're dealing you know, with patients with temporary-induced alcohol impairment, just logically, what's the best indicator of their level of impairment? Is it the bedside clinician who's examining this person, or is it some number in a chart? And I would argue that it's the clinical assessment. And once I started down that road, then it became, well, what is an adequate clinical assessment? What's needed? What's done? What wouldn't be onerous to both the patient and the bedside healthcare provider? All right. So it's the Hacks Intoxication Index or Impairment Index. In the paper, it's the H Impairment Index. That's how it's titled. And I put my name in because if, if this fell on its face, I didn't want anybody else taking heat for it. Uh, and it also works out that it's high score, like how high is that patient, you know? So I thought that was kind of nifty also, you know, what's, what's you know, how, and there, there you go. Uh, I love the pun. Toxicologists love puns. Yes. Well, you know, abbreviations are so important, you know, the... Timmy and whatever, you know, I, th I thought this could be the high score. Yes. I think if we asked people what CWA stood for, if we offered them a hundred bucks, I don't think we'd have to pay anyone. CWA is not really a word, so right. they, they lost a big opportunity there because everybody <laughs> knows the CWA score. Yes. And hopefully it'll be the high CWA or whatever. Right. And just as a reminder for people who are listening, so CWA is 
a level of withdrawal. It's alcohol withdrawal versus sort of an objective level of impairment. And um, right, yeah. So what uh, some centers did, and actually the Rhode Island Hospital in the, in the, in the past, you know, was because there was nothing else to do. They were CWA scoring alcohol intoxicated people, which is which is not what it's for, which prompted me to start to figure out that maybe there was a better way to identify when someone's impairment was declining and we could identify the window where their impairment was minimal, their functioning was maximal, and they were not yet in withdrawal. And actually, you mentioned something I just wanted to touch on. You'd said that uh, some centers say when somebody is unimpaired, that's time for, for discharge. Um, we were very, very careful that at the, that window of maximal functioning, we, that we, we didn't tell people, we, did, we absolutely didn't want our message to be to staff that that's the time to discharge somebody. We were very clear that that's the point where we want to make a disposition decision. And disposition could include going home, but also, and hopefully would be to perhaps a detox program. So we would reapproach these these patients and say, Hey, listen. This is your seventeenth time. You know, if it was seventeenth time here in the emergency department, maybe this is the this is the time where you want to change your life and make some some positive steps. And sometimes, sometimes opportunity they, for brief intervention. Some, which... This is the, and that was the moment. That was that was what we identified. So so some some people said yes. A lot of people said no. But at least so. But that's that was the spin on it. It was it was not an opportunity to expedite people like out into the street. It was. We identified that moment, and then we presented them with options. And like a lot of places, the department has a separate unit for kind of continued monitoring of patients who both have psychiatric but separately have alcohol intoxication. So that's, I mean, that's one of the really unique and exceptional things about Rhode Island Hospital's emergency department is we we have a separate unit for alcohol intoxicated and psychiatrically ill patients. And it's run by a, an exceedingly dedicated staff of nurses and providers who really deal with alcohol-intoxicated people on a daily basis, and they do it with an amazingly good heart. I mean, this is a, this is a tough population. They may see the same person every day, every day for months, who perhaps might not be you know, the nicest person to them, but they have fantastic attitudes. And they are interested in these patients' best welfare. And I've found them to be, with the support of uh, nursing leadership and obviously uh, my colleagues, very interested in, in the best care for these patients. And they've been uh, amazing advocates. Great. No, absolutely. Yeah. So they have a lot of experience with this patient population. Absolutely. Lots of people have a lot of experience with alcoholics, but they have it in a professional capacity. Um, and so, yes. So, uh, and so you essentially came up with the index. There was training involved to show healthcare providers who were caring for these patients how to do this index in kind of a reliable way. Can we just quickly go over the components that make up, like how you calculate it? So if I have a patient, how do I calculate the score? It's five sections, and each of them is scored four to zero. And uh, it's speech and cognition, so what the patient is saying and how clearly they're stating it. There's the gross motor, which is can they uh, sit up steadily? Can they stand steadily? Can they walk steadily? It is nystagmus, so follow my finger with uh, using your finger as a target. It is finger to target, so the patient touches their own nose and then reaches out and touches their fingertip to your fingertip and how steadily they do that. And the one that I had to invent was a fine motor and coordination test. I, I totally made this up. And 
the reason I made this up was there are fine motor assessments in alcohol intoxicated patients that are done in the labs with drunk college kids, yada, yada, yada. It's like there's always a computer involved or some spinning device. And there's just that's just not going to happen in the Rhode Island Hospital Emergency Department. And or prob- anyone's emergency And, and probably department. most places in the entire world. So I had to invent something that would involve uh, fine motor and coordination. So I created this, uh, this, I call them the wiggly lines. And essentially what the patient has to do is, uh, with, a, with a pen, has to trace a line between two pre-printed lines that sort of undulate up and down across the uh, page. And the two lines are about half a centimeter apart. And they do their best yeah, so essentially it's, the, it's, it's staying within the lines. Staying within the lines, essentially. Yeah. Color within the lines, stay within the lines. Right, and it's really easy if you're sober. You're like, okay, I could do and this it, and no problem. Right. it's really easy. And it's um, really hard if, if you're, you're... unimpaired, correct. So this, this is what I did. The broad brush of scoring is essentially a four is you are so impaired you can't cooperate, and a zero is you do it perfectly and completely unimpaired. A three is you can attempt it, and these are this is for all of them. A three is you can attempt to participate, but you don't do real well. A one is you can do the activity, but imperfectly. A two is sort of between that. You can sort of do the activity, but you sort of don't do it well. So that's how it works. So five sections are scored with a top score of 20, a minimal score of zero. Perfect. And then it's normalized over 20. Correct. So some people just refuse sections. So we just decrease the denominator by however many sections they refuse. So if their total possible score was, um, uh, if they refuse to do one, like if they refuse to uh, uh, talk at all, then their total possible score was out of 16. Correct. So you just said, you know, they got 12 out of 16. You didn't say 12 out of 20. Correct. Excellent. And that's important. That's important to know. And then, so you ended up with effectively zero to one. Uh, effectively zero to one once yeah once you did the equation exactly yeah you normalized it and and pretty honestly it, it sounds it's actually pretty quick it sounds like it took probably a couple minutes less to do once once you figure out how to do it once you've done it a couple of times it probably takes about three minutes to do yeah and after a while the alcoholics probably knew how to do it themselves if there's frequent flyers so uh, and this was a, this is a pilot study so this was done and the neat thing about the study is you did a few things so you did it at presentation and then, Correct. and then you. Um, so they had a medical screening, a medical and traumatic screening by a healthcare provider. Uh, they were screened, glucose checked, the vital signs were checked, and any other appropriate studies were uh, obtained. Once they were deemed safe, or uh, that they didn't have an issue, a medical or traumatic issue, and that they just needed time to sober, or for their alcohol-induced impairment to resolve, they went to the D pod. And then were serially assessed by nursing down there every two hours with the high score. Okay. And the other benefit of the other sort of uh, real bonus of of the high score was, in a, in a lot of ways, it really really improved the quality of the chart. So it wasn't the guy was downstairs for eight hours and you had you know vital signs of X through eight hours and an assessment might be sleeping, you know, and and then. Not for a couple more hours. You know, I, I mean, this is obviously a slight exaggeration, but what the high score gives is a real impetus for healthcare provider interaction with these patients every two hours. And I've been told anecdotally that people feel this creates a much stronger chart because you can see sort of through time these high score numbers coming down towards, you know, one or zero, depending on somebody's baseline uh, activity. And you can really see they 
You know, the guy can't sit up. Oh, now he can sit up. Oh, now he can stand up and walk, but he's unsteady. Now he can stand up and walk and he's steady. Oh, his nystagmus has resolved. It's like an infant he's, growing. He's growing. He can walk. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. And I guess that's one definition of it. So, so it creates, a, a, I would say, a really strong chart. And that was another sort of thing that we wanted to do. Concurrent to that, I also wanted to maybe be able to identify the person that wasn't resolving their high score as what you would think. So perhaps their level was, you know, 18, and then it came down to 16, and then the next assessment was 16, and then perhaps that should and has really catches your eye. And you go, huh, this man or woman isn't improving in the way that everybody else seems to have improved. Something else may be going on, right? Because Drinking a tremendous amount of alcohol has been absolutely associated with occult, traumatic, or medical illnesses, right? So maybe this person's cellulitis was missed, and they are actually developing sepsis, or their pneumonia was missed, or their head bleed, you know, was missed because of previous injury, and this alcohol impairment is obscuring this traumatic injury. No, that's a great, yeah, because essentially what we're really talking, anyone who's ever been to an M&M conference where there's a case of someone who was in sort of the drunk tank or the psychiatric unit, and they were there for 12 hours, and literally you look at the chart and there's an intake note, and then there's a note when they were found, you know, unresponsive and not breathing, and there's a fine line between sleeping and dead, especially when the assessment is done from five feet away. And so um, just having this index that you kind of mentioned requires frequent evaluations, and then yes, sometimes... Although we always like to think that we are perfect and we could always know if something else is going on, having an objective number, literally graphing somebody or, or seeing something that should be changing, and you actually looked at it, I think you said that between the first assessment and the second assessment, on average, the improvement was about 0.125. So that's on a scale of zero to one, improvement from 0.125. And then you even, it was kind of nice because you had some people, you had a second assessment, a third assessment, a fourth assessment. You had some people that had five assessments, which I think means eight hours or more because zero to eight hours. And so if, they, if they're not dropping as much, should they reassess? These patients have much higher healthcare costs in some respects because they all, it seems like, get CAT scan. And if you try to do the good thing and say no signs of traumatic injury, we're going to continue to observe. And then you want an extra bell to ring if they should be improving, but they're not. That's exactly it. So let's paint a picture of them. They are impaired. They often can't contribute significantly to the history or the physical examination. The alcohol use is highly associated with occult traumatic or medical illness. They have long ED stays. So that was another aspect that I thought was important for instituting the high score, which is that not infrequently these patients' hospital or emergency department stays bridges between two healthcare provider shifts. So how do you standardize healthcare provider A's physical examination and assessment when they go off shift with healthcare provider Bs, who's picking up these patients. Well, to have a standardized evaluation, hopefully that assessment is more equal. Everyone knows what a pulse is. Everyone knows what a respiratory rate is, even if it's just written down as 12 bit um, or 20. But um, 16 in the 16 is the is yeah, the yeah. yeah. I always like it when the, when the, yeah, the respiratory is, rate of 16 always. Yeah, I always like it when they're smart and they add one. They're like, <laughs> I'm just going to add one. Um, but yeah, so so having inter assessor reliability. And so, right. Which you, hasn't, by the way, been officially documented, but we're yeah. working on this. It's, it's a pilot study, right? Absolutely. And, and you also bring up a good point, too. And I think one of the studies that your paper references, I think, is 
Gentilello. And they just asked people, do you think they're intoxicated? Do you think they're not intoxicated in trauma patients? And what they found was if the patient was male, young, disheveled, poor, uninsured, the physician was much more likely to say they were intoxicated. And so really, you're not really measuring level of impairment or function. You're really measuring, what do I think of this person? Social. and Right, social. And so um, having something that was based on more than just how the patient smells is probably a good idea. So you did this, you got a bunch of data, and you broke up the patient populations also by, I think you said, essentially you had your frequent flyers who had three or more visits Correct. for alcohol impairment, which would be highly suggestive of somebody with an alcohol abuse disorder. And then you had uh, your minimal patients who were only there maybe once, and then I think you had a middle group that were there for two times. And that was also interesting too, because really what you're getting, well, why don't you say why you did that? Why I split them up? Yeah. Well, we wanted to see if there was a difference in the high score evaluation, the bedside provider's evaluation, and the alcohol levels of people who drank very infrequently and people who drank a lot. And then it became, well, you know, in, in this was uh, six months of data. So, you know, if you show up once in, in six months, maybe it was an accident. If you show up more than three times in six months because of your alcohol use, you probably drink a lot. And then there were, what do you do with two? Well, was it an accident twice? I guess it could happen. And that's sort of the gray zone, um, why we made those splits. Okay, yeah. And then, yeah, that third, that third group is sort of like, hey, it's Jimmy again. Mm. Um, I don't want to be biased. Maybe it's Susie. But uh, mm. at large, predominantly, this patient population, it tends to be predominantly male. In your study, I think it was a higher proportion of men than women. Absolutely. And, uh, and so you did this, and you checked at alcohol level, and it seemed like in some patients it was a BAL, and in some patients it might have been a breathalyzer? It was up to the bedside physician to do so. And that was at presentation. There That's was, correct. And it's, I, nothing kills a toxicologist more than serial alcohol levels. And it could happen because the high score at the pilot study is an additional evaluation. You know, we didn't change, we were very careful, we didn't want to change anything that was standard of care at the time of its introduction. We didn't want to interfere with that. It was additional. So there may be people with serial alcohol assessments, uh, you know, laboratory or bedside alcohol assessments or other things. And most people know that what we tend to understand is that uh, chronic alcohol abusers will tend to induce their metabolism of alcohol and their alcohol level will drop faster than perhaps a naive who, person, right, a naive person whose alcohol level might drop slower. So there's really no universal level. And we also know that the physiologic effects of alcohol on cognitive function vary a great amount depending on somebody's history of alcohol use. And so some people, as we've already said, have their optimal level functioning when they are, when their alcohol level is above 100. And uh, so it's interesting to break up these groups like that just to see that and really reflect that. And just a little buzzword for people, you know, essentially what we'll also find in general is that when you're drinking and your alcohol level is going up and you hit 100 milligrams per deciliter, you have a certain level of impairment. As you go back down and you hit 100 again, physiologically, you tend to be less impaired or less drunk to the layman, even though you're at the exact same blood level. I'm trying, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying, to think of, I'm trying to think of the name of this. The melon bee. The melon bee. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I always think that the buzzing bee, the, the honey bee, it's the melon bee. You're exactly right. It's the so, melon bee. So they call it uh, acute tolerance. Yes, exactly. A hyper, hyper acute tolerance, even yeah, like tolerance. in the same person over Lovely. the same time. And it's also what leads to somebody going, oh my God, their alcohol level is so high. They're, they're never sobering up. And then an hour and a half later, they're chatting with you and asking for a sandwich. I think it also maybe perpetuates the myth that IV fluids sober people up because I have worked in several places mm -hmm. where nurses will be like, well, give them a few liters of fluid, you know, to wash out the alcohol because mm -hmm. it sobers them up. Um, I think this has been roundly discredited. Yes, in, in numerous literature. studies, in yeah. numerous studies, but people will still, still do it. And then yeah. you just get urine. 
everywhere. I think there's a letter, but a very well written letter somewhere yes. addressing this. Oh, is it authored by you? Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, so, so anyway, so he did the serials, and so obviously uh, what, that's a joke. But yes, I did write a letter at some point about this. Cool. All Sorry right. It wasn't you weren't the, you weren't the, no, no, the no, patient involved. No, no, I was not. Uh, okay. Uh, not that I remember or, or will admit to. Absolutely. We talked about how you measure it. We talked about why you wanted to measure it in terms of having reproducible assessment oh. in these patient populations and, and avoiding both getting too low maybe and, and maybe holding somebody long enough where they start to acutely withdraw without any benefit to themselves at the same time, not holding them long enough. Because in some of these studies, people are assessed as no longer impaired when they are impaired. And our, our clinical gestalt in some of the old studies was not 100%. Right. So it's the high score versus your healthcare provider's bedside assessment of impairments versus the BAL. And that's what we looked at in, in these three groups. And what we came away with was it looked like the high score assessment correlates well with the healthcare provider's clinical assessment of level of impairment and does not correlate well with the BAL. Now, talking about sort of the older studies, a lot of them were roundly criticized and thought that a bedside assessment didn't work because what they were comparing that to, what their impression of gold standard was, was a BAL. My point is that I don't think a number is the gold standard. I think the bedside clinician's assessment of impairment is the gold standard. So that's what we held our two evaluations against. So it was the bedside clinician's assessment of impairment versus the high score versus the BAL. And what correlates better is the high score with the bedside assessment than the BAL. And that's why the previous studies, I think, weren't interpreted as uh, as giving the information that that they were trying to get. Yeah, it's it's tricky because it's almost like obscenity. Like everyone knows it when they see it, but getting a specific definition of it can be difficult because you yeah. don't have, it's not like this was a rapid score to try and use to replace a widely used gold standard that's been validated. Realistically, the gold standard that we use is clinician judgment. In everything other than perhaps this. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's too broad of a statement, but in a lot of things, the testing is is sort of the, you know, there, there's a lot of testing that goes on. But but then the assessment is well, you have a number that's different than your clinical assessment. Well, I don't believe that that number, right. um, except in this you know state yeah. where, in the old literature, we say the bedside clinician says, hey, I assess that guy, he's not impaired, but his BAL is high, so the clinician is wrong. I don't know that to be true, and I think probably. And again, this is this is just me far out there, as you know, uh, I, I, that I sometimes do, is that, you know, where, where are the roots of this? The roots of this are in the police assessment of impaired drivers, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how we get into the whole legal ramifications of this. But remember, the impetus for the roadside assessment, in my understanding, is primarily, so the police officer using certain techniques, is able to, with some degree of certainty, determine whether it is more likely than not that this person has an ethanol level of greater than 80 and therefore is justified in impeding this person's future travel, right, to hold them. So that's what this was for, which is very different than what we do. We're not holding these people to see if they can travel in their car more, we are charged with making sure they're healthy, right? Yeah. And 
that's a real paradigm change. We, uh, you know, we're not police. Yeah. Um, we're not charged with holding people for the most part against their will, although there's, you know. We do it in their interest, though. We, we do it for medical we, cause. We do it, right. Or if they're imminently and at risk for harming somebody else. Or, yeah. But first of all, being drunk is not a crime. And using alcohol is not against the law since the day's prohibition was repealed. Yes. So yes. some age exceptions, yes. Some age um, exceptions. And actually, in this study, I was wondering if you felt this was a limitation or not. Was there an attempt to filter out patients who might be impaired from substances other than alcohol? Again, as, as I stated before, so the medical evaluation, we did not control. Whatever the bedside physician thought needed to be sent, got sent. So there was no control for if this person had another substance on board. It's kind of like equine-derived anti-venom. So there's a lot of extra stuff in there that is real-life stuff. It was more important for us to have the experience of introducing this into a clinical setting to see if it was feasible, to see if the nurses would accept it, to see if the patients would do it, to see if it took too much time, to see if there were any facets of it that we hadn't sort of accounted for by introducing this to a real, very busy emergency department with this specialized unit for caring well for these alcohol-impaired patients. You know, I, I suppose we, we could have got healthy people drunk in a laboratory, you know, with soothing music or whatever, you know, whatever. I believe there are a number of universities in Providence that, that, might that, may, that may have provided subjects and then have had more clean numbers. But I think as a practicing emergency physician, as we both are, I want to know I would have criticized the paper myself saying, yeah, that's great. It works in a lab, but will I be able to get it done in the emergency department? And definitely serially. And will people who are doing it accept it? So that was more important to us. So there's, there's some fuzzy areas. There, that's absolutely true. Could they have other substances aboard? Sure. Do I really care? I, I don't think I do. I think that their impairment probably would have been additive. But the benefits are that I, again, would have had a serial examination that showed a resolution of the impairment. No, that's, yeah, that's an excellent point so, to make. And actually, I think one of the, um, I think it was the Mahler paper that, that actually did do urine drug screens on everyone found that 80% of the people had positive urine drug screens in who that they thought were uh, intoxicated. So they said, aha, so 80% of these people might have something on board. However, 80% of the people who were completely sober also had positive urine drug screens. Mm -hmm. And so the utility of a urine drug screen was certainly considered not, not really that helpful. Yeah, so other people have tried to look at it. It's a muddy, it's a muddy issue. Yeah. So was well, it the, and the other thing is, you know, as a toxicologist, how much we love drug screens. Yes. You know, the, that the guy has a benzos in his urine doesn't mean he is currently intoxicated. It means that at some point in the last, you know, five or four, five, seven days, he took a, you know, took right. a Valium. Yeah, always got pinpoint pupils and he's apneic, but his opiate screen is negative. His negative, so, so it cannot get... possibly be yeah, uh, fentanyl. Actually, Actually, you, uh, you just broached the thing. So, so, you know, one of the other sort of parallels to this um, assessment is, you know, we see the heroin overdose patient, right? We bring them in, we monitor them, somebody who doesn't need naloxone, they wake up on their own, you know, when do we let them go home? Well, we let them go home and they wake up on their own. Do they still have heroin, uh, you know, or active metabolites in their in their bloods? Absolutely, they do. But they're awake and functioning and they're saying, let me go home. So you let them go home. So in parallel, right? So the alcoholic who, is, who has overdone it, they are impaired. We watch them, we make sure they're medically and traumatically okay, they wake up, we assess them to be unimpaired, we should be able to let them go home as long as they are abiding by the social contract. They're not going to do something that's going to kill themselves or others. Absolutely. Getting a little philosophy in there with the, the grand social contract. <laughs> sorry. There. Did I, did I watch poetic? I'm sorry. Stuff, yeah. 
So uh, I guess the question is pilot study, see if it was accepted, see if it was useful. Was it accepted? So it was. The nursing uh, nursing leadership was exceptionally supportive. The DPOD nurses are exceptional people who do this job on a daily basis. The feedback I got initially, it was something else to do. But I, I think that many of, if not most of the nursing who do this assessment on a daily basis definitely felt comfortable doing it and felt that it wasn't significantly onerous. These are some of the people that gave me feedback that, uh, that they thought it made, a, it made a stronger chart. Okay, great. That's, that's good. And so generally what you found, step one in any pilot, could you do it? Yes, you did it. So there wasn't a so, huge impasse to Absolutely. That so it could be done. Step two is, does it seem like it's actually telling you something? And it seemed like, based on a few things in the study, you had reason to believe that the numbers you were getting were valid. So holding against the gold standard that we think is valid, which is the bedside provider's evaluation, did the high score correlate with the bedside provider's evaluation? And the answer appears to be yes. And also, while BAL is not an appropriate measure for impairment, you also threw in some correlation there. And it seemed like for your single presenters, so people that might only come in once for, let's say, you know, they, they went out Friday night, there was some correlation on on the Pearson correlation coefficient of 0.324 with a p-value of less than 0.001. Correct. And with the high-frequency visitors, there was no correlation between their clinical impairment and alcohol level. And that actually makes sense too, what Which we know clinically, sense, because yeah. people's brains are soaked in different amounts of alcohol at various points, and the BAL really has no predictive value for what somebody's function is if they are a chronic alcoholic. Right. So our, our assumption was if you were a high-frequency visitor to the emergency department for alcohol-induced alcohol intoxication, that you were likely drinking on a regular basis and drinking a lot. Yeah, and so, those are the people with a level over 400 but still talking to you and wanting a sandwich. And Right, who through time and logically through a decline in their BAL, whether it was measured or not, they achieved their maximal functioning, the point of maximal functioning, with a significant amount of alcohol on board. Yeah, you would expect the high score to go down over time because the idea, hopefully, is that the alcohol level is going down over time. Correct, towards their steady state, their level of highest functioning. Now, an alternate explanation for improved scores is also, it seems like whenever you do the same assessment on a patient that involves any element of skill, although these aren't all skill, they get better at it. And Correct. so was there any possibility that some part of that improvement in score was people going, oh, I did this two hours ago, oh, I did this four hours ago? Sure. Absolutely. That, that could be part of the issue. But generally, those, my sense of those are these are sober people who are doing an activity over you know several times and getting better at it. These are people who are doing an activity when they're really impaired and then doing it again when they're a little less really, really impaired and then a little, little less really, really impaired. So I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of learning that going on, that's going on, but certainly that could be, you know, at least partially responsible. I think that there are some complicating things that necessarily were in the group that we examined, which is that some of our more frequent visitors actually will chug alcohol and then flag down an ambulance to bring them to the emergency department. So not infrequently in a specific population, their high score would actually worsen over the first interval. So between their, their high score, high score one is, you know, X, but high score two is X plus Y, 
Yeah. Uh, so it actually goes up. And, uh, you know, I, I remember seeing this and we were we were first astounded. How is this happening? And then through some investigation, we discovered that, uh, again, a very specialized population of our frequent alcohol intoxicated visitors have this as a routine. They chug their alcohol, they flag down the ambulance, they come in as their alcohol-filled abdomen is absorbing. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of so um, they're actually being becoming more drunk, more in front of us. more impaired. In front of our excuse eyes. me, more impaired while they're sitting in the in the bed in the triage uh, and, area or in the depot, whatever. And because alcohol is absorbed incredibly rapidly, I mean, usually like thirty minutes, you've got a fair amount in your system already. It's it's one of the reasons why when you take a shot, not when you take a shot, when someone mm, takes a shot, they feel those effects fairly rapidly. Sure. And yeah, I've seen that story of the guy who was recovering, and then he was found on the lawn 10 minutes later, unconscious, because he downed a fifth of something all of a sudden. And so you're seeing people that are sort of planning for the night, it sounds like. Perhaps. (laughs) I've not had that conversation with them, but perhaps they're tucking in for the night. So so this pilot study, the idea is that, you know, this could be used in multiple ways. Maybe it would be useful just in general patients. Maybe it would be useful in trauma patients. In, in other settings, in other ways, you have access to a large population of intoxicated patients in the state of Rhode Island. What's been going on lately? So we are finishing up our data collection for a two-year study that was actually my mid-career grant that was underwritten by the University Emergency Medicine Foundation mid-career grant. So thank them very much for giving me the release time to examine this. And also, I just want to take this opportunity to thank my co-authors on my pilot paper, which is uh, Dr. Eric Goldlust, Dr. Franz Gibbs, and uh, Dr. Brian Zink. And also a special shout out to the DPOD nursing and healthcare providers who are all incredibly supportive and excellent. Great. Um, So now getting back to your uh, question of what's been going on lately. We're just finishing out the data collection of hopefully it'll be a full 24 months of DPOD alcohol intoxicated patients seen in the DPOD for primarily for alcohol and uh, intoxication. And looking sort of our interval data assessment at 18 months found 5,700 unique visits just for alcohol intoxication, okay. which is sort of a fairly staggering number. Yes, that's like 11 or 12 intoxicated patients a day. A day, continuously. Yes. Who were serially high scored. So this this will be hopefully a robust data set that will give us, you know, allow people to feel comfortable that this is something that uh, actually means something, that the scoring system actually means something. Great. So that's that's going on here. And then do you see this being used more in specific situations? Do you see it being used just anyone who presents to an emergency department with, uh, you know, the suspicion of alcohol intoxication or impairment, where would you like to see this in five, 10 years? Well, I, I mean, ideally, I, I think if the results are borne out by uh, other studies that are currently being formulated and going through various IRBs and centers and other centers in the country, uh, colleagues of mine, Tony Berger in California is working on a high score study in California. Hi, Tony. I think what I'd like to see is multi-center data from various institutions of various ability. And hopefully it supports what we think this does, which is detect the level of impairment and follows it through time and shows resolution of impairment. So a person at the end of this is at the state of maximal functioning 
and they can make at that point an informed decision on whether they want to enter a detox program, get more support for their alcoholism, or or if they want just want to go home. Yeah, well, I think we covered. I mean, it was a great opportunity to talk about the high score and, and also see you again and to see you again. Absolutely, yeah, Bobby. It's been, yeah. a, Bobby, it's been a long time. Absolutely, you look yeah. good. Thank you. I try. Yeah, I try. you. Uh, you grew some hair. I did. Well, I became. Oh, I went when I when I so when I was under uh, Doctor Hack at at Brown, I had not uh, no facial but... hair. Not not literally, but as a, as a resident, I had no facial hair. And then once I decided to go into toxicology, I had to follow in his footsteps and grow some some facial hair. Facial hair is um, important. It, 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 yeah. it yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. the natural filter. It's true. It's it's like the microphone wind filter of the mouth. But yes, and so I've uh, thank you. It's good to be back uh, back here at um, Brown and Rhode Island Hospital. And yeah, I think that was a great opportunity to talk about the high score. I think it's an interesting pilot study that asks a good question, and it'll be exciting to see what happens in the future. And it was also a really great opportunity to talk about alcohol-impaired patients in the emergency department. Well, thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you at length about something that's important to me, which is the care of these at-risk patients. So that that was great. Thanks so much. Thanks. And we'll put a link to the article online. And um, if we can, we'll try and put sort of a handy reference for the high score if you wanted to try doing it on, you know, your friend or roommate. Um, and then let and, me know about it, please. Yes. I, I want to hear about all anecdotal reports, obviously done in a safe, IRB-controlled, human-protected manner. All right. Or if your friend or your roommate, you know, YouTube is great also. Um, no, I'm not commenting. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Jason. Thank you also. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Talks Now. You can get more information at our website or check us out at our Twitter feed at Talks Now, T-O-X-N-O-W. You can also email suggestions or comments to us at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.